0: If you're interested in the world of video and digital media, you'll want to listen up to this interview. It's with Alex Connock, Managing Director of Shine On Digital and Shine North, based in the UK. We talk about how the world of video is evolving, what are the best ways to make, distribute, and monetize video, as well as the relevance of having a social media presence as a senior executive. Enjoy the show. (music) Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Good day. This is Minter Dial, and we are on the Minter Dialogue Show on Skype Direct. Beaming into Cheshire, Cats, England. <laughs> I have one line with me, a grand old friend from school. Uh, so, Alex, tell us who you are and what do you do?
1: I, I'm Alex Connock. I'm a friend of Minter's from a long time ago from INSEAD, and I uh, work for a company called Shine, which is a large global uh, TV production company. And uh, I um, work in the UK, and I. Um, from one of its TV production units called Shine North, uh, which is particularly specializes in advertiser-funded programming, and also, perhaps most relevantly for this discussion, a company called Shine On, which is the new digital content company that Shine has created to grapple with all the incredible opportunities that are coming our way on a daily basis in all the multiple platforms that we find in the digital world today.
0: Right, so tell us what in Shine On you're producing. So Give us some ideas, some names we can go and visit or understand. Well, in terms of Shine in
1: general, we produce things like a Master Chef, One Born Every Minute, The Hotel, Sunday Brunch, Got to Dance, um, lots of dramas. For example, in the UK last week we had May Day and um, Broadchurch. You might have seen Spooks, Life on Mars, Hustle, big dramas that we made. Um, there's, a, there's a movie production company who made Salmon Fishing in Yemen, for example, last year. Oh, yeah. um, and then around the world, so in France, where they do the Voice and MasterChef again. Australia, they do, and America, they do MasterChef. They do tons and tons of TV shows. I mean, at any given point, I think I think last year I saw some statistic that we have made 131 TV shows. So um, we're, we're producing lots of shows all around the world at any given time. Um, I was quite struck the other day because um, I, I didn't really know much about our Scandinavian production, and then I realised that they produced The Bridge, which is one of my favourite TV dramas of last year. And interestingly, that drama is now being. Um, reproduced, um, both in the UK and France. is a co-production between Sky and Canal Plus uh, called The Tunnel, where the action is transposed to the Channel Tunnel, and in America, on the US border for FX channel on the US-Mexican border. So it's, it's a very global company, and, and the content is very global. And the other thing the content is, is very, very um, transportable online. So a couple of years ago, even, when you were packaging up the um, rights to produce a show, and you were trying to pre-sell in order to raise the money to produce a show, you would probably have a line in there that said DVD Mm pre-sale. And sometimes that would be quite a big number. So someone was telling me on a drama the other day that they'd done, I think it was 500 or even 700,000 pounds worth of DVD pre-sale against the big drama series. Now that would have disappeared. And what you would be replacing it with over time, although the numbers haven't matched yet, is a Netflix or an Amazon or a Hulu presale, or what have you. So the, if anyone had any doubt that there was, a, if you like, a merger or a synergy between the TV distribution and the online distribution, they need to distribute themselves that doubt right now because actually these things are, are, are incredibly synergistic. Not only that, but on the development side, so if you think of the constant quest of any show business company is to come up with the next talent or the next project or the next idea – It's becoming increasingly possible to start thinking about doing development online on YouTube. And so what you would hope to do is is to sort of create a brand of some sort, whether it's a person or a channel or something, and to to create a big following for that brand and then to leverage that either on its own into a marketable and commercially successful entity. And there are some big ones like Charlie is Cool, for example, lots of ones in America where that's possible, or to turn it into a TV brand. And, uh, you know, and, and what's happened to our business is essentially whereas in, whereas five years ago you would sell a show essentially by walking into a room and saying, here's a piece of paper, now it's just as likely, except in drama, so you would walk into a room and say, click onto this Vimeo link or this YouTube link, watch this tape, and then that's what the show is like. And that exact sequence of events happened to me this week where one of my colleagues spent two days in his kitchen editing a video for a particular show idea that we'd had, and he essentially, he, he made what's called a sizzle tape, which is where you... Um, Cut up a kind of mood board, if you like, the show as a sort of two-minute-long movie trailer, if you like. And he sat in his kitchen doing that. I went round, you know, with sandwiches and all that. Uh, and then we played, played that tape to a channel, and they just went, "Yeah, we'll have that on the spot." That's how, and that's how that's how the business works now. So Shine On is about taking that world. Grappling with it and 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 creating business around online distribution. Mm-hmm. And all right, so compared to the past,
0: and now we have new lines with Amazon or Hulu and so on. To what extent has the production changed? Is there, I mean, does there anything that changes upstream, or is it just about reformatting it, rejigging it? Does it no, that's
1: sh- interesting, an interesting question to which the answer is yes and no. So. So I think a few years ago, if you'd asked people, they were very concerned that what was going to happen with um, the arrival of online was that um, there was going to be kind of lowest common denominator approach to content, Mm -hmm. and um, because of the multiplication of channels, that the aggregate amount of money available would be diluted more times, and therefore the average budget per hour or per minute would drop. And the people were really concerned about that, and at, at the various TV conferences, that was what was talked about. In fact, Almost the reverse happened what's happened is that because there are so many channels and so many platforms and so many ways for people to access content um, the the content itself has had to become more special in order for people to um, arrive at that channel and the perfect example for that is Netflix with their sponsorship or production you know their investment in house of cards yeah. where you know by all accounts they paid something approaching a hundred million dollars. Uh, Or rather, the the total budget was about 100 million dollars. There were certain TV pre-sales in there, but you know, there's something like 100 million dollars was invested in Kevin Spacey and David Fincher's 13-part drama House of Cards for Netflix, which became a strong driver of Netflix brand and traffic in February. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, the anecdote goes that on the first day in February that that program was on, 100,000 people watched all 13 episodes. Which is, which is a radical transformation in the kind of network TV model when you think yeah. about it. So, here you have a kind of fairly classic 13 part network TV drama, and yet people are logging in, not in arrears, not on catch up, but they're watching there, there and then, watching 13 episodes back to back, you know. Yes. And, and the funny thing is, that's not necessarily a bad thing for the Netflix model, because the Netflix model is about, about subscription generation. You have to have a subscription to watch anything. So, provided people are interested at all and watch it at all, that's fine. Well, it's, plus, a, it's a fascinating new work. Just just to answer the other side of your question, which your original question was, um, what's what's the um, what's the arrival of online done to the production model? On the other end of the equation, economically, it's a radically transformed model. So, for example, we're making a channel called Nail Something on YouTube with two um, girls who who teach um, young teenage girls how to make make their nails which, you know nice and. Uh, that, you know, the, the, the production cost on that is very, very, very low indeed. And most YouTube production um, models are very, very low. If you look at what Maker Studios have as their output, you know, they claim some 10,000 channels. I'm sure if you looked at the average production cost per minute per channel, you'd find it was almost zero. In the sense that people are just sitting in their bedrooms making stuff. And people like Charlie is Cool, who's on another network, that actually yeah. shining, it's called Channel Flip, you know, has some 150 million views. You know, and it's literally just the guy in his bedroom, essentially. So um, it, it, it's, a, it's a very, very, it's like the universe itself. It's expanding outwards in every direction. <laughs> and that makes it, you know, really, really interesting and fun. You know, I think the big qualification, if you like, is that not everyone's going to win. And so, you know, you have to engage yourself on a daily basis mm-hmm. with a simple challenge. How on earth are we going to make money out of this? Because there are a lot of people not making money.
0: Yeah, so you have this feeling of being at the beginning of the universe, and I can totally feel that. And you, on the one hand, you have to get better, better quality. On the other hand, funnily enough, it doesn't have to be more expensive. And so the question I have is, as a business guy running this company, how do you evaluate market share? Um, well, yeah. Um, uh, I,
1: well, I evaluate market share by who's paying us and how much money we're being paid by people to make stuff. You know, I think that's the best way of evaluating market share. Right, because, because it's
0: such a new world. There's no, yeah, real, I was, I no benchmarking.
1: A good example of that is advertiser-funded programming, whether on TV or online. So if I was to attempt to scope out the market for advertiser-funded programming, I could come up with some notional sort of um, pie chart or something that showed the amount of money theoretically involved I- I- available in the UK for TV programming sponsored But that would be an entirely random statistic because Mm. it's money that could otherwise be spent on display advertising or TV advertising or online marketing or any of the other things that they could spend their money on as media buyers. And it's not as if at the beginning of the year a specific amount of money is hypothecated by every media buyer in Britain and then aggregated into a a, a total um, fixed budget for advertiser funded programming. What happens is that you're in the marketing mix like everybody else. And you're desperately trying to win that money against all the other places that could win the money. So it's a very, very tricky thing to do to say, I'm going to, I'm going to determine the size of the market, and what have you, or even what percentage of the market I've got. Mm. And probably the better thing to do is just to say, let's go and get some business. Right, exactly. You know? Be an entrepreneur. So yeah. um, But what's very interesting is that all the big production companies, there are about seven big TV production groups in the UK, and they're all actually, every single one of them now has been started by and acquired proper entrepreneurs if you like mm-hmm. and i think that's that's vital because it's a properly entrepreneurial activity you're either trying to create and sell tv shows to tv channels which is extremely hard to do mm-hmm. or you're trying to create and sell content to online channels and advertisers which is also extremely hard to do and in neither case is it some is it some sort of automatic corporate thing like being A gas company or an oil company or whatever, you wear a kind of automatic line of customers outside your office every morning. It's really difficult, you know. And I think one has to approach it in entirely entrepreneurial fashion. Mm -hmm. So when when you uh, look at the 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 world
0: of video, let's call it video, you've got these pure players, you've got the old fashioned players, you've got um, so the Netflixes, you've got the Googles and YouTubes. You've got um, the the cable telcos. You've got production houses and the sort of more traditional television companies. <laughs> How do you map out those that universe, and, and who do you think is going to win? Perhaps. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know that one, one. needs to perceive it as winners and losers. One needs to just
1: perceive it as selfishly, or rather selfishly, perhaps. One just has to perceive it as what can we do, you know? And I think that. Um, what we do every every day, actually, literally every day now, is we just think, right, let's try and make up some shows, you know, let's try and make some stuff up that people will want to watch, whether that is, it's not my particular department, but it is the overall company, whether that is, you know, inventing an incredible drama series that will take three years to get away and will cost £10 million to produce, but will be a smash hit TV drama, you know, in lots of places, or whether it's... Let's invent a simple YouTube channel that will be sponsorable by a supermarket chain or by you know somebody who runs an organic farm or whatever. You know, um, so, so we're just concerned about the content, you know, and and I think that that's probably the best place to start. If you start from a marketing standpoint, you probably won't get um, a great bit of content and you won't achieve your marketing objective. That's the paradox, isn't mm. it? You know, if you start from the content and, and produce something great, you, it will find a market, and that this is the eternal. Challenge of show business, which is that the the, the the customer doesn't know what the customer wants until the customer sees it. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a market of people in 1973 saying, "I really need to watch an action movie about a shark in Cape Cod." You know, that's what I'm looking for. if you have done a market research survey around Birmingham and, you, and said, what, what, "What are you looking for?" I said, "I'm really looking for an action movie about a shark." You know. They, they would, it wouldn't have happened would it? You know, so it was only when Jaws arrived that people realized they had this pressing need to see an action movie about shark and kick up. And, and I think that, that sort of is a sort of microcosmic example of what we're dealing with you've got to invent the stuff and people will come to you. you? you know, what you can't do. Is sit there every morning waiting for a a set of briefs to come in, which we'll then respond to, and, you know, uh, and, and, if you can somehow build a business like that. And by the way, that's not just a, that's not just an affliction of the TV trade, that's an affliction of the advertising trade as well. So I think the whole madman advertising agency model of essentially Procter & Gamble ringing up every, you know, month and saying, right, you know, where's our new campaign? That's to a very great degree being eroded. And what you're seeing is the big advertising agencies are very much getting into content. Either through direct investment, like uh, WPP, kids, onto Group M and Vibe, and what have you, or through just simply trying to create great, great campaigns or virals or what have you, which you seen pretty much every creative agency is doing, and to even some media buying agencies. So this is this is an environment where the content, you know, it's it sort of it's sort of went, well, interesting enough. You know, you and I met at INSEAD in the sort of early mid '90s, and at that point there was Ken Letter and people writing these articles saying content is king, and Barry Dillard's with this vision and all that. And it was kind of true, but it was too early. you know. And mm-hmm. they, they were talking about convergence. When you went on your landline, you could barely get sort of, um sort of mono dial tone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And actually, it took basically 15, 20 years before the broadband caught up with where the ideas were in that early mid-90s period. But now we're there. And it really is true that content is king. So if you and I were to wake up tomorrow and say, do you know what? Let's let's launch a Netflix rival with some slightly tweaked business model. You know, the, the next question will be, what's going to be our killer show? You know, what's going to be the show? Our Sopranos, our Mad Men, our Breaking Bad, our you know House of Cards, or whatever it is. Because it's only when you've got a killer show that you've got any kind of content proposition. Mm-hmm. In the UK, BT, which is the big phone company. Um, are trying to rival Sky in the sports broadcasting field, as you mm-hmm. probably know, mm-hmm. and um, you know they they've invested a lot of money in launching two channels this year. And um, now that they've got the channels, they need to get the content. And mm-hmm. so it's all about the content now. It's about the sports rights they can get. It's about the shows, the entertainment shows, and what have you. You know that. And so you know it always gravitates back to that's fantastic. We've got a network now. What the hell's going on there? And, that, and that, that's as true of YouTube or Google Plus or Google Hangouts or Yahoo or Hulu or mm-hmm. Netflix or Amazon or any of them as it is true of CBS or ITV or, or, or France 3.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. <clears throat> In a brand world, uh, we, we tend to use the same sort of terminology. You know, you're a brand, you're making shampoos or whatever. Well, we do still say that content is king, but we also have a product. That's as hard good, and the question is sort of how do you yeah. embalm the product with this service that is the content of information, of education, of entertainment yeah. that, that you provide as a pure player. All right, so one of the questions I had for you, Alex, was how do you make money uh, with this great content? You know, what are the what are the best ways to 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 generate money because the the models have so changed.
1: Well, I think that the, I think the models haven't changed, and in a sense, sort of way, that's the interesting thing is that if you read a Sort of history of Hollywood or something, you know. I have done it. Read quite a lot of them. and um, if you read right back to the very beginning of Hollywood, um, the um, essentially it was about the creation of a hit, you know. And um, it, you know, you could make a movie that people didn't watch, or you could make a movie that people did watch. And in essence, if you made one they didn't watch, you didn't make money. And if you made one they did watch, you made money. Fiction or drama, you know, the, the most obvious original way to to um, to, to fund a hit. Is to get it on TV, obviously. But then, in terms of monetizing it beyond that, going into profit, it's it's what they call syndication nirvana. So it's get it's creating something that becomes scalable because that scale, based on the the, the, the single fixed cost of being a sunk cost, to go back to kind of business schools mm-hmm. league, become, means that every marginal sale becomes a pure profit. And so, if you think you now, why is Friends such a great thing to own? It's because the original production cost of Friends is long since covered. And so apart from the residual payments to the actors and the scriptwriters, um, it is essentially a pure profit operation, re-broadcasting France. Yeah. So everybody is essentially trying to create content, whether online or on TV, which um, which covers its costs in terms of original first-run production, but then goes into some kind of syndication or re-extrapolation. Sorry, the um, phone. Uh, sorry. Um, it goes into, goes into a kind of second life, which is, um, which, which is where it's really going to make the money. I understand. And so that, I that, understand. that's what we're about. And that same is true, as on, same is true online. So so you know, what, what would be a useful property to own on YouTube? It would be one that went absolutely nuclear on the, on the views to the point where long ago you had covered the rather modest production costs. And then you were just in a place where either with a channel sponsorship or with some kind of CPM model, you were just making money on every new view, even if it was minute amounts of money. Um, you know that becomes very, very serious. You know that that, that that's the place to be. I guess so, so. More than ever, people are concerned with creating hits. All right. So, but I
0: understand that. And what I was trying to get back to is the conversation we had a little bit before going online, which was this notion of, of what are the different ways to channel and and make money out of a hit. So you know, should we be vertical, have it on our own line, have our own distribution, or do we need to use distribution partners? Uh, should we be – how much can we make money by putting it out on YouTube? Just to look at the, the different options that you have as a, in distributing great content.
1: Well, they're, 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 they're so um, legion, it, it, it's bewildering on, on occasion. But, but, but just thinking about our own business um, – in shine on we sort of segmented the market three ways and i think it's probably quite helpful to do that the first one is is if you like broadcast support and so what we would do is if we create a tv show we would then seek to create additional online content around that show to give it a life so for example if you have the masterchef brand that's obviously a brand that has a lot of traction with a lot of people around the world and whilst they like watching it in australia at 8pm for an hour they might also like to watch it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon if they're looking for a good Mauritian menu or a Chinese menu or what have you. So if you create a second life for MasterChef, so that's the first way of thinking about it is take these really big B2C brands that live on TV, which is still the preeminent means that people reach um, content, and, and give them a second life. So it's no accident that Ricky Gervais is launching an online channel through YouTube. That was announced yesterday. It's no accident that Simon Cowell is launching a channel and so forth. Second area is is, it's going to the pure play on the digital channels themselves. So you can do what Machinima or um, Channel Flip in the UK or Maker Studios do, which is you can create standalone channels. And if you look at the Maker Studios materials, you can see that they believe they can not only create channels, they've got about 10,000, they can create channel hubs, which have a kind of traction, but because they're all for mums or all for gamers or what have you. And then you can monetize them either through direct sponsorship from a sort of interested sponsor. So for example, you might get uh, a comedy channel sponsored by an alcohol brand, um, or you can actually create... Um, um, you know, enough traction and enough views to actually make money and, and, and you know, out, out of the advertising and mm-hmm. there's typically a CPM sort of four to seven dollars and, and actually. Uh, there 's lots of dispute about whether whether CPM is going up or down and so forth, but nonetheless there, there is some magical figure out there for each given platform where if you 're getting one hundred million views, you can make a credible amount of money. but you need to be in that let that level and mm-hmm. getting forty thousand or four hundred thousand is probably not going to do it for mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one is direct, direct creation of content for brands in a number of different fields, so um, for example, you could create a you know, project for Coca-Cola or Sony that worked on Facebook, or you know, you could create a you know multi-platform project for a Unilever brand. And this is probably your speciality, you know. So you, you know the content that aligns itself to the consumer brand is you know powerful, and the best example of that I've ever seen was in a project that Unilever did in China called Clear. Was it, was it, it was a clear the dandruff shampoo and they made a project called Unbeatable, which, um, which was a drama about a girl whose job it is to market as a PR person the anti-dandruff shampoo mm-hmm. Unbeatable. Um, and uh, just by pure coincidence, um, the Chinese word for uh, for the for clear was also Dandruff. So, so it was a kind of perfect synergy. And so, it's a drama about a girl marketing shampoo. That was in itself um, a, a the drama, name of the plot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, a, it was a brilliant drama. And 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 if you looked at the Unilever presentation on it, it was incredible the traction they got. You know, vast numbers of views in every single platform, every social media, half a billion video views. You know, yeah. off, on, online. You know, smash it TV traction and so forth you know that it was always the perfect place to do it and the perfect example of where brands want to be i think the guy who did it or one of the guys who involved at unilever was a fellow called um jeff cd who's a very clever guy and he he said in some session i did with him that, that unilever are looking to spend some 30 percent of their global advertising spend now on on content i mean you know you, you may want to check that with them but that was that was some figure that sort of, sort of notionally I, I came across and i think that's a really interesting thing is that is that, you know, very, very big brands like that have decided to directly spend on content. And so that third area of online content monetization is, you know, let's, let's, let's create content for brands, you know. Mm. And, and this is not any kind of rocket science. I mean, you would struggle to find any advertising agency or even PR company worth their salt in the Western world who are not now engaged with the business of trying to create content for brands. You know, it's absolutely core to, to what everyone's doing. Similarly, you would struggle to find any TV production company which does not at least have ambitions in advertiser-funded programming at certain certain level, even though there are lots of regulatory challenges around that. You know, And so everybody, both on the production side and the, um, if you like, traditional advertising side, is gravitating towards this same point, this kind of nexus point, it is most certainly an
0: interesting area and, and this, this, uh, this Unilever thing also shows you how powerful China is as a market. So a last question for you, Alex. We are on in a digital space in shine on and you are a digital dude. You're living the social media world as a top executive and and this is not a common thing yet. It, I think one day it shall be. So my question to you is how did you come into it and how are you living it being a social on social media?
1: Well, it is is a common thing, actually. And certainly in our space, I would say it's common to be really, really engaged with social media in our space. And it's also quite common to not be really, really engaged. But I I don't think it's at all exotic to be engaged. And if I look at Twitter, you know, as it sits right in front of me now, I can see the heads of lots of rival and friendly companies that I've worked with or, you know, trying to compete with, um, all beavering away, chatting away on Twitter about everything. And I think that it's no surprise that in show business, to, to give it its broadest definition, um, people are um, doing this because, because show business has always been about engagement with the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you not want to have a two-way conversation with the customer? Interestingly, one of the most interesting things we're doing at the moment is we realized that we had an enormous resource we had lots of Twitter followers for lots of our shows. And uh, we thought we might want to aggregate and sort of measure the conversation a little bit. So we went, we sort of benchmarked all the various measurement tools that um, are on offer for Twitter around TV shows. And we ended up with one called Second Sync, which I can recommend, actually. It's very really good. And what, what's great about it is you can take a TV show that you've made or transmitted, and you can, in a kind of edit timeline view the tweets that were made about that show as it were in real time. So you can see that the show went out at 10 o'clock at night and at 10.12 there was a peak in tweets. You can see what they were saying. And at 10.15 nobody was tweeting. And that's a brilliant kind of dial uh, measurement tool to work out what was working and what wasn't working in the show because not only is a show defined by... um, how, how, you know, how positive or negative people were, but just by how strongly they felt. And if the strength of feeling is measured by the number of tweets, ideally you'd want a high strength of feeling throughout the show on the basis that a low strength of feeling probably creates a higher propensity to switch over. So it's fascinating on that level from a sort of professional standpoint to use Twitter, particularly Twitter, which is probably the only social media platform that really matters, I think, you know. As a, as a kind of genuine feedback loop to the customer. And, you know, it, our best successes with it have been where we've engaged on multiple levels. So, for example, we did a show in the U.K. called Hotels, made by a company called Dragonfly, a brilliant show. Um, <laughs> the hotel, actually. It was about this kind of ridiculously dysfunctional hotel in um, South of England. Torquay. Uh, Torquay, yeah. And, and, and interestingly, the, what was successful about Twitter on that show is the guy who ran the hotel, a fellow called Mark, the manager was very, very keen on Twitter and tweeted all the way through the show. It was a pre-recorded show, but he himself tweeted all the way through the show that he was in. Secondly, the guy who'd made the show also tweeted, and thirdly, the channel tweeted. And so what you had is this kind of wonderful triangulation of comment coming essentially from from us um, around the show, which then created a kind of virtual power base or sort of um, yeah, gobbling or away or of, of activity, yeah. which everyone else was able to join in on. And, and that, that's almost the perfect way to do PR. I found myself in a session the other day with BBC where they were saying, you know, what can we do on engagement? And I was, I was saying, you know, what's interesting is that, is that whilst, whilst uh, PR um, is it, it, often perceived as best, something best done in a singular fashion, and it's probably true that when something's going wrong, you only want one person to handle it, you know, because you need to have a singular approach to it. When you're, from, when you're in promotional mode, you actually want to use triangulation you want multiple sources of pr or basically chipping into the same conversation but from different angles because there's a certain verification kind of feedback loop that creates itself whereby different people you know in the conversation saying broadly the same thing but in different ways actually creates kind of level of credibility and and that's certainly you know so so to go back to your original question you know how does one, does one engage with this The answer is it's incredibly useful as a professional tool because for the first time in the whole history of TV since it's invented in the late 1930s, it's truly possible to have a live conversation with the audience about what's going on. And, you know, all all those statistics, about 70% of people having a second screen open in front of them, in front of the TV and so forth, and the figure being even higher. What was that fantastic statistic about people under 25 watch an average of... Um, eight hours TV a day in five hours. In <laughs> <As laughs> well, you know, people are like watching more TV or watching more media than they actually spend time watching media because they're doing it multiple levels at once. That's really true. The second thing is just to address your question about personal sort of career side of things, I think it's not at all de rigueur to be on social media and I think many of the most successful um, uh, media executives in our country and am sure any other uh, are still not on social media and I don't, wouldn't say that that was any kind of deficit to them. However, I know lots of people who are, and I think what it enables them to do is to have a conversation with everybody in the game, irrespective of the geography and irrespective of the time. And so you can get, you can just get involved, you know, in discussing the issues and what have you, swapping ideas and so forth. You know, and it's nine o'clock in the morning, and already today I've had, you know, really fun stuff from guys who write and people who write books and people who have got ideas for TV shows. Some students at Manchester University who had it were given a viral competition. You know where they had to try and make a video about a Kinder Egg go viral, and they managed to do it. and How did they do it? And that they, you know, they like a really talented bunch. And you're thinking, well, could we hire them? And so forth and so forth. And so it just enables you to do your research, or you do your sort of, if you like, um, community engagement, but not in a kind of worthy sense. Mm-hmm. You know, without without ever leaving your room. well. Yeah. I mean, so
0: there, yeah. you say it's not de rigueur, and I think that it's for some people completely nonsense of was they don't really have a listening kind of mindset they may not be really, really interested in you know chit chat or anything small talk it's only got to be sort of very important books that were 500 pages long and that's their mentality so for them it's not appropriate but don't you feel that the energy that you get when you're online and that sort of openness to all the conversations if, if you're willing to participate can give back energy to you
1: yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think but there's a certain type of personality that enjoys that. And yeah. I, I know lots of them. And um, everyone enjoys it. You know, yeah. there are other people who much prefer sitting in, in, it's a British reference, but sitting in the Ivy, you know, just chatting to their mates there. I think what I would say is whether, whether Twitter is your bag or, or, you know, going to the football and having a box at the opera or whatever it is, you know, I think that I would struggle to name any media executive in in the UK or US market that I'm aware of who doesn't on some level seriously engage with the need to socialize with the customer base. And that's not a great surprise. You know, my brother-in-law is big in the pallets business, providing pallets to supermarkets so they can ship drinks around. And he socializes all the time. That's just business. You know, the paradox of, paradox of our age is you interact online, but you win business offline. <laughs> that's the strange thing, isn't it? Well,
0: you know? I, I find you can even win business online as well, if you know how to figure it through. All right. Two, last, two quick questions. Vine. Are you for or against Twitter's Vine?
1: Oh, I, I love Vine as a sort of creative game. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure I've... But actually, there's one friend of mine who, who, who's used Vine quite successfully and seems to have managed to promote her website. It's called Hello, I Fancy You, and it's some sort of dating website. She seems to have got a long way using Vine. Um Creatively, and I think if you do a Vine, it's got to be good. I mean, I think it's only six seconds long. Mm-hmm. It's got to, it's got to be a good narrative, and it's got to be well put together. And you know, it, it, to use Vine badly is a waste of time. You know, but it, it is fun. I'm not sure it's a world changing fun. It's just a fun bit of kit. I think video in general, which is, of course, what Vine is, is an astonishingly powerful tool. And I think you know, my observation recently in the TV business is. is um, there was that wonderful thing in the Malcolm Gladwell book. It sounds like a dope digression, but it isn't. But there's a wonderful thing in the Malcolm Gladwell book about um, the power of video. And, and he was talking about Harvard professors and where they, they surveyed a class of, uh, about a professor at the end of a term and they got all their scores back. And then they showed another class who hadn't been taught by the professor, a video of a professor for an hour, and they got exactly the same scores. And then they showed a third class, a 10-second Video of the professor with the sound t- turned down, and they got the same scores. In other words, ten seconds of mute video was worth the same as a whole. Let the whole term of classing. That's the power of video. All right. So,
0: Alex, how can people connect with you and follow you?
1: Uh, well, I, like you, mentor, I love. I love um, uh, hearing from random people and chatting. So, so uh, at Mister Alex Connock, that's M R A L E X C O N N O C K. Always welcome any kind of conversation. Um, and if you'd like to look at our website, shineondigital.com, uh, just launching now. So it's a great little bunch of people, and it, it's going to be a great, a great venture, I think.
0: All right, beautiful. Alex, you can uh, return to your weekend life. Thank you very much for being on the show. I look forward to following you.
1: Okay, love to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having
0: listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue radio show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, t h e m y n d s e t, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter. If you like the show, please don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or tweet it out. And if you speak French, you can find my other French language interviews on minterdial.fr. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset or catch me on Twitter at MDIAL. Happy trails.